Go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 6. And while you're doing that, I'll just kind of share with you. I'm going to tell you about our 2015, if you wouldn't mind for a second. You say, 2015? Yeah. The year 2015. So, in 2015, we started the coffee shop downtown in our building. We introduced a new member to our family. We started gathering as a church together for the first time. We bought a new house. And there was a handful of other things that happened in 2015. And I remember 2015 being a pretty stressful year for us. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, how much more is God going to throw at us? Could there be any more? And I'm sure he's probably laughing, saying, oh yeah, there could have been more. There could have been a lot more. But I share that to say that uh, what we're going to see this morning isn't necessarily quite like that. But what we're going to see this morning is the result of what I'm going to call growing pains in the church. We have seen so far in Luke's record of the early church that God has continued to add to the numbers of believers. And many are coming to Christ daily as a result of what God is doing, right? And it says that the disciples and the apostles continued to teach and preach the name of Jesus and many came to Christ. But that comes with growing pains. And you've all been there in your own lives. You've all experienced growth in your own lives, whether as a family or in an organization or personally. And you know that as that happens, there's some bumps in the road. And we're going to see this morning that as a result of the church growing, there's going to be some growing pains that come with that. And we're going to see how the apostles and how God deals with that in the early church. And what I hope we recognize and see is how God is preparing the church for what is still to come. That God knows what the church is going to encounter, and God has on his radar screen what they're going to be experiencing in the future, and he's helping to prepare them in the here and now for what he knows is coming. And I remember when we learned about Mirren, uh, I was actually on a Samaritan's Purse trip down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I think, after a tornado had gone through. And Susan had taken the big girls on vacation to the beach. And I think she learned then, while she's essentially all alone by herself with two young ones, that she can't really disclose or share this detailed information. So she's wrestling with that herself, by herself, while I'm somewhere else in the country. And I think I got back maybe a week later or something like that, or a few days after they got home. And when we had crawled into bed for the first time, she shares this news with me, and she breaks down. I hope you don't mind me sharing. She breaks down and starts crying because she says, life has been perfect, and now our budget doesn't work. This doesn't fit our budget. Our cars don't fit. Our house doesn't fit. This does not fit our lives. This new addition is going to be a huge disruption to what we consider to be nice, easy, smooth sailing. And I remember that we 
laid there and I just said, look, um, this is obviously a miracle. This is the work of the Lord. We cannot deny that. And so God is going to provide for us. And, and that's how we need to move forward with this. And she's been an amazing addition to our family. And God has not missed a beat with any of those things. We've got vehicles that fit. We've got a house now that fits. We've got budgets. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. Amen? So let's look at um, Acts chapter 6. And we're only going to see uh, seven verses this morning. And our sections are going to break down into to three this morning. Uh, we're going to have verse 1. is going to be a section all by itself. And I'm just going to call that the growing pain. The problem or the growing pain. Uh, section number two is going to be verses two through four. And that will be the adaptation to the, the growth or the response to the complaint. And section three will be verses five through seven. And that will be the result of basically empowering others. Verses five through seven will be the result of empowering others. Now, let's just read this whole section since it's only seven verses. It says, Now... At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid hands on them. And in verse 7 it says, And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So you guys can see that Luke is recording for us what is kind of a problem, right? There is a complaint that has arisen by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews for what we consider to be uh, maybe a mistreatment or a different kind of treatment of these widows. And we might say, man, this is a huge problem and this, this is uh, going to look like another obstacle or attack on the early church like we saw with Ananias and Sapphira. And in one sense, it kind of is. But maybe we could take a more positive note on this and say, this is an opportunity for the church to grow. This is an opportunity for the church to overcome, be successful, and unite itself amidst this dilemma. And so as we look at verse 1, we see that it says that the disciples were increasing in number. And it says, now at this time. And a more literal translation might be literally, in these days, they were increasing in number. And I believe this is a continuation that Luke is giving us from verse 42 in, verse, in chapter 5. Look at verse 42. It says, And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So as a result of them continuing to preach and teach Jesus, many are being added to their numbers. Just like Jesus gave in the Great Commission. Teach, baptize, and make disciples. They are preaching and they are teaching the name of Jesus. And many 
are being added to their numbers. You know what's interesting? This is the first time the term disciple is used outside of the Gospels. It's the first time the term disciple is being used for followers of Jesus. I thought that was kind of interesting. And so in verse 1, part B, we see that this complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Well, who were these Hellenistic Jews? Well, these would be, traditionally speaking, uh, or traditionally saying, we would call them Greek-speaking Jews. But I wouldn't say that the differences stop right there. The differences between the Hebraic or Hebrew-speaking Jews or Orthodox Jews and these Hellenistic Jews goes much more than linguistics and language. It's a whole culture. It's a whole cultural difference in, in the way they approach things. And so we know what the Greek culture was like. We, we studied 1 Corinthians where Paul is having to address all kinds of sort of regular lifestyles and habits and behaviors that existed in the church in Corinth. And so you think about this being more than just language, but a whole cultural difference. On that same Samaritan's Purse trip that I was on in Alabama, you know, you go down there and, and you're not in the tourist spot, uh, spots, you're in the heart of the South. And we know that people in the South might speak a little bit differently, slightly different vocabulary, slightly different accent and dialect. But there's a whole cultural difference there, too. I remember sitting at breakfast one morning, and I think I was having some mush and grits and all that that had been prepared by the church for all of us volunteers. And I was sitting there with uh, somebody who was from the South. He was the project manager. I'm sitting across the table from him. And he goes, man, these grits is good, ain't they? I said, they sure are. He goes, making me want to slap your mama. And I went, I said, what? And he said, you know, they make you want to slap your mama. And I said, what does that mean? And he goes, oh, you don't know what that means? I said, no, not at all. And he said, well, that's what we say down here when something's just really, really good. It's just so good, it makes you want to slap your mama. And I said, okay, learn something new every day. But that, you know, that's a whole culture. It wasn't just the accent that he used when he said it. I mean, it's a whole culture difference, right? And so we see here that these Hellenistic Jews are concerned and they're bringing a complaint against, that's key, against these Hebraic or Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being mistreated or treated differently when it came to the serving of food. And so we understand that this could, this could be an opportunity for a huge breach, a huge wedge in the church, couldn't it? We've seen amazing unity in this early church. Amazing unity so far. And here we have these cultural differences that could just drive this wedge in here. But God's not going to let that happen. But look at our church today. I mean, we, we have division in the church today, in the body of Christ, for much less than cultural divisions. We'll divide ourselves over all kinds of small things. Michael has shared stories about previous churches just being frustrated about the color of carpet and not being able to come to an agreement on the color of the carpet. 
and factions and divisions occurring within just one local congregation, let alone denominations. And so we treat this as a complaint, but something else that the American Standard Version says is translates this word complaint as murmuring. And this word occurs just four times in the New Testament, this word for murmuring. And the same word is used for murmuring in John 7.12, where it says that many murmured about Jesus leading the crowds astray. And in Philippians 2.12, do all things without murmuring and questioning. 1 Peter 4.9, using hospitality to one another without murmuring. And so murmuring generally isn't a good thing in Scripture. Murmuring against God is definitely not a good thing, and the Bible warns and cautions us about murmuring against God. But here, when Luke uses this term, this murmuring is actually an okay thing, because this is a legit concern. This is a legit complaint. They were being treated differently, and they shouldn't have been. So why was this a problem? Well, we might say that this was a problem for four reasons. The first reason that this complaint arose or that this is a problem is because that the resources of food, these were to be used for the entire body of Christ. Remember in chapter 4, verses 22, somewhere in that range, where it said that everybody was bringing what they had and they didn't consider it to be their own, but for the collective good. It says that nobody was in need. If somebody had less and somebody had more, the body in its unity was willing to share so that nobody had need and those who had more could help supply and offset that. And so that occurs with the resources like finances, with the selling of property, but it also exists with the food. And so the food that was being served to the widows was intended to be for the entire body. And if it's only being distributed to some, then that's a problem because that which God has intended and designed for the body is only being distributed to some. The second reason is that it shows favoritism. When you treat somebody differently in the body of Christ for any reason, except maybe some sin, uh, this is showing favoritism, right? Doesn't James warn us about showing favoritism? We're talking about that at Pagal right now. I mean, James, he just cracks down on his readers and says, you guys are really hypocritical. When somebody who's dressed in all the robe and the, and the garments and the rings and they've got all the letters after their names and everything, when they come into your fellowship... You quickly run over, you grab them, you say, you come up here and sit in the front, and you sit in the best seat of the house. We're going to give you the cushy seats, we're going to give you the best views. And James says, these are the same people who, Monday through Friday, are dragging you into court. They're blaspheming the very name by which you have been called. They mistreat you every opportunity they can, but yet when they come into your fellowship, you get starry-eyed and enamored with their status, and you start to show partiality or favoritism towards them. 
Paul does the same thing in Corinthians when he warns about sex and, and little uh, cliques and groups and factions. He says, you guys are stacking up teachers for yourselves. You guys are going through and looking at the teachers that have been in front of you and you're saying, oh, I'm with him because I like his style. I, I love what he has to say. Or I'm, I'm, I'm with Cephas or I'm with Apollos or I'm with Paul. He goes, you can't do that. We all came to you with the exact same message, which was Christ crucified. Stop showing partiality. Stop showing favoritism, even towards your favorite speakers. So we see that resources that are only being used for some and not others is a problem. Treating people differently and showing favoritism is a problem. Third reason that this is an issue is that complaining against one another is a problem because that's warned against in Scripture. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 13. James, I kind of mentioned that. First Peter, we read First Peter a second ago where I said that uh, using hospitality to one another without murmuring. So Scripture tells us that we shouldn't be complaining against one another. And, and what we see from the text here in verse 1 is it doesn't say that they were just complaining about the issue it says that the Hellenistic Jews were complaining against the Hebrew-speaking Jews. How many of us have found ourselves not just complaining or murmuring even about a legitimate concern that we might have, but actually complaining and murmuring against or towards the people who might be doing it? There's a difference. There's a difference between being concerned about a legitimate issue as compared to truly complaining against another person. There's many, there's numerous issues in politics right now that we could take issue with, that we could have a problem with, right? But look at how quickly we just go to the person and we just start bad-mouthing the person, we start attacking the character, we start defaming the name. I mean... We want to go after that person quickly. And this may have been what was happening here. Not that they were super, super, as Michael uses the term, vitriol. Maybe it wasn't really, really nasty. But we get the sense here that it wasn't just concern for the issue, but concern about and against the Hebrew Jews who we can presume were administering and serving these tables. And so our fourth reason here why this is certainly a problem in the early church is that ultimately they're neglecting care for widows and orphans which is completely antithetical to the character of God. Not just that some are partaking of the resources and some are not. Not just that uh, favoritism is being shown to some and not to others. Not just that complaining is a problem and we're warned against that in Scripture, but neglecting widows and orphans is completely antithetical to the character of God. Now let me just share some verses that God speaks about the care for widows and orphans. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. Deuteronomy 16, verses 11 and 14. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. Deuteronomy... 24 verses 19 through 21. Deuteronomy 26 verses 12 through 13. 
Job 31, 16. Psalm 146, 9. Isaiah 1, 17 and 23. Jeremiah 7, 6. Malachi 3, 5. Uh, 1 Timothy 5. James 1, 27. And I don't even know if I got all of them. God is serious. Serious about the care for widows and orphans. For those who maybe contextually and, and culturally could not care for themselves. God says, I care about them and I expect my people to care about them. So if anybody, including the Hebrew-speaking Jews, were neglecting the Hellenistic widows, that's a problem. And it's not representative of the character of God. And so what we've seen here from these, this first verse of Growing Pains is that as organizations grow... Stuff comes up, right? Think about churches today. We are a small church of believers here. But we have growing pains. Some of our growing pains as a result of of growth might be that we don't have enough manpower to maybe get something done. Or maybe resources or whatever. And God has to deal with that. You know, the big mega churches that grow really, really fast and have huge numbers, they've got growing pains because they're subject to the cliques, the favoritism, the little factions within. And they're also subject to the dilemma of still being able to spiritually mature their believers and their attendees when they get big. Think about what Bill Hybels has said on numerous occasions. That He said, I, you know, I grew a church really, really quickly, but we got so far down the road and realized that this church of thousands were very immature believers. And so growing pains happen, period. And it's incumbent upon us to be sensitive to the Spirit of the Lord as to how He's going to accommodate and deal with this. And so we're going to see that here in this next section. So we're not immune to what the early church had to go through. And hopefully here at Renew, we're obedient like these guys. Look at what we see in verse 2. We're going to see them respond to this complaint. It says, And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples... And said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So obviously the twelve refers to the apostles. And we might infer that when this complaint arose that maybe the Hellenistic Jews went straight to the apostles with the expectation that the apostles themselves might do something. That the apostles might actually take over this task. Now, I'm, I'm kind of speculating, right? The text isn't super, super clear. But we, we might infer that maybe the expectation by the complainers and the murmurers was that you guys need to do something about this and maybe it's your job to start distributing the food and serving tables. But what we see here is that they say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. That's their response, right? Here's what I think is important. 
Look at verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You know the word there for ministry and the word for serving up above in verse 2 comes from the same word in Greek, diakonia. Same root word implying serving and ministry. And the point I want to make here this morning for a moment is that the apostles understood that serving of food was no less important than the ministry or serving of the word. Do we see that today in the church? Or do we stack up certain ministries and certain tasks? Do we prioritize and create a hierarchy? I would, I would say that we do, unfortunately. Paul called out the church in Corinth for building up the flashier gifts, the stuff that was more visible, the stuff that got more notoriety, they were prioritizing. I think in the contemporary church today, we prioritize the preaching and the teaching and the, the stuff that happens up front. Here, I think it's pretty clear that the apostles are saying, look, we'd love to serve tables and we're fully willing to, but this isn't what we're called to. What we have been called to first and foremost by Jesus Christ himself, is to preach and teach the name of Jesus. That's how we have been operating. That's how he has continued to empower us. And that's what we believe we are called to do and we will continue to do. Not because we're too good for serving tables, and not because serving tables is any lesser a task than what we're doing, but simply because if we neglect the word, then there leaves a void. If we stop doing this right now to go over here and do this, it's going to leave a hole. I think we have a misconception today about the these tasks, these responsibilities, these ministries, all of which are equally important. Think about the example we have of the body of Christ. Some are, some are a hand, some are a foot, some are eyes, some are noses. All are necessary. And when one is hurting, the entire body suffers. And when one says, I would rather be a hand and not a foot, that's a problem. But when the foot says, God has called me to be a foot, and I'm going to be the best foot for the Lord, my gosh, the body benefits. The body as a whole is edified by the foot saying, I'm going to be the best foot for the Lord I can possibly be. I'm going to take this responsibility and run with it. Pun intended. (laughs) And I would say, just to kind of as a side here for a second, you know, the best leaders are not the ones who say, I'm the best at all these tasks, so I'll do them all. The best leaders actually recognize where they're called and they recognize how to identify the calling in others' lives. The best leaders don't say, I'm probably the best one for this. I'm going to do all of it. 
Rather, they say, I know that other people have this calling on their lives, and I'm going to help them identify it, and I'm going to empower them and entrust these tasks to them, because that's what brings glory to God. Look at verse 3. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Task is uh, maybe better rendered as need or necessary work. And so the apostles recognize that there is a need here that needs to be overseen and that somebody needs to take charge of this. Would you guys turn with me for a moment to Exodus chapter 18? Keep your finger in Acts, but turn to Exodus chapter 18 for a minute. There's another event in Scripture that I think looks a little bit like what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 6. Exodus chapter 18, and we will begin um, in verse 13. And it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Long day. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Okay, pretty good reason. It's fine. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Okay. Also, makes sense. Watch what Jethro says. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you are doing is not good. Not the judging, but you're trying to handle this all by yourself. Verse 18, you will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I shall give you counsel and be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk, and the work they are to do. And Jethro continues by saying in verse 21, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men okay, who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them, the people, as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace." And so Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. And the difficult disputes they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Okay, go back to Acts. No, that was long. But what we see there is a very similar situation, right? Moses understands that there needs to be 
the settling and the judging of disputes. And he's fully capable. And he's fully willing. And he has been sitting in this office and operating in this capacity. And he's doing it from the morning until the night, every single day. And the people are bringing all their disputes. And you see that he is willing to continue doing this. He understands that the need must be met and that he's capable of meeting the need. But his father-in-law says, this is crazy. You cannot do this alone. There's no way you can manage this. You'll wear out. And of course, the bigger principle or picture is that the body doesn't benefit at large by a single man doing this. And so God uses Jethro to speak some sense into Moses and shows him how he can provide some structure for the nation of Israel. And it wasn't about whether Moses wanted to or not. It was that it was not practical and that's not what he was called to. And so we see in Acts here, it's not about whether the apostles wanted to or not, or whether they saw serving of tables as a lesser task than the preaching of the word, but rather, that's not what they were called to do. And so God is establishing a structure, and he's getting ready to give a framework and a skeleton to this organization that is totally unified right now, So that when the persecution gets turned up, when the heat gets turned up and the flame gets hotter, there is a structure to deal with it and go forward. Did you notice the qualifications that Jethro gave to Moses? Here's who you should pick. Pick men that have these qualifications, these qualities, these attributes. Look at what we see here in Acts. Look at verse 3. We see four qualifications for choosing these seven men to serve. First thing we see is that they should be men within our fellowship. They should be believers. They should be disciples. They should be those in our midst, in our body. You are to choose from yourselves these men. I know it seems kind of obvious, but that's important. Think about the qualifications for replacing Judas. The qualifications had to be that it had to be somebody who had been with Jesus in his public ministry, had been with the disciples all along, had seen the miracles he had done, had witnessed them firsthand, had seen the crucifixion, had seen him put in the tomb, and then seen him resurrected and stood there before them. That's who needed to be a replacement for Judas. It had to be somebody that matched those qualifications. And so here they say, You need to pick from among you seven men who are of us. They are disciples of Jesus and they have witnessed the things that we have seen. Not from Jesus' public ministry when he was alive, but since we have been gathering as a church. It says they need to be of good reputation. This is also the word for witness. Of good reputation. Pick men who have been exhibiting skills, experience, and a heart to handle this. They've proven themselves. Don't go and pick somebody who is among you, but has not proven himself worthy or capable in this kind of an area. Pick somebody that you know, who you've witnessed, who you've seen, who is of good reputation, and you know will handle this task well. 
You know, that seems really obvious, but I don't think that we always practice that today, whether it's in the secular world or whether it's in church. Sometimes we don't use that as a qualification. Have we seen somebody who exhibits a skill set or a heart or a passion to execute this task that we are going to charge them with? The third qualification we see is full of the Spirit. Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this because Michael will elaborate on this a little bit more when we get into uh, three messages we have about Stephen and his persecution. But we've seen the idea, we've seen the phrase filled with the Spirit by Luke on numerous occasions. And in many of these occasions, it refers to a, a particular task, a supernatural empowerment for a specific and expressed event. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that here. It means that the Holy Spirit is working in and through these people at all times. The Holy Spirit, he permeates everything about this person. Isn't that who we want serving in our church today? Don't we want, regardless of the task, don't we want somebody whom we have witnessed and seen the Holy Spirit controls and empowers and just permeates every aspect of their life, their speech, their behaviors, uh, the way they conduct themselves, everything. And then the fourth thing is, this person, these people should be full of wisdom. And we would say, wisdom is defined a little bit differently in, in God's word. It's defined differently and it's set apart from just basic knowledge because it's the application of knowledge. It's how do we apply, how does a person apply what they know? See, anybody can gather facts about a situation. Anybody can read black, read, black text on a white page and get information. But what you do with this is wisdom. You know, James cautions those who want to be leaders and teachers, and he says, you want to be a teacher, you better be wise, because true wisdom comes from God. Yeah, you can dispense facts all day long, but what you do with that and how you apply that is true wisdom, and true wisdom comes from God. And so we see here that we've got these four qualifications for these men that are to be chosen to serve tables. And I think about our local congregation here just for a second. And if you two don't mind, I'm going to just celebrate um, Jackie and Pam. They have both said to us in different ways and on numerous occasions, we want to serve. We want to be used. We just we want to we want to help where we can. And Jackie does an amazing job with our finances. There was a void when Melanie had to transition. Jackie says, I can do that. And when we look at her, we say, yeah, she's full of the Holy Spirit. She's wise. She looks exactly like these men that were being chosen here in Acts chapter 6. And what a great thing is. The body is now blessed by her saying, I just want to be used. I just want to be a help. And... You guys don't necessarily know what Pam does, but she has exhibited an amazing heart for service behind the scenes. There is so much that she does every single morning here for all of us that probably goes unnoticed, maybe unrecognized, and each and every one of us is extremely blessed by the ministry and the service that she does for all of us. Wise, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and somebody from among us.
We celebrate these two, and, and many of you do all kinds of things when we have specific events or other times, you know, food when somebody's in need. You know, I could go on and on about how we as a body care for each other, and that's a beautiful thing. And so we see that these guys find seven men from among them who match these qualifications. So our last section, the result of empowering others, verses 5 through 7. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And I believe that Luke specifically kind of shares some information about Stephen because I believe Luke has in mind what he's about to continue to write and tell us regarding Stephen's martyrdom in the next few verses. But the thing I want to focus on in this section is verse 6. And it says, And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And so we see here, in, in a sense, we have this sort of public ceremony of sorts. We have this public declaration. We have this public commissioning of these men. It says that they prayed for them, and they laid their hands on them. The apostles are now publicly empowering these men to take charge of the tasks that are at hand. And so by doing this and officially praying for them and laying hands on them, it demonstrates a couple of things. It, it demonstrates and reveals that the multitudes have chosen these men. Isn't that kind of like what Jesus said when the disciples came to him and said, Hey, you've been preaching all day. It's been, it's been good. It's been good preaching. You're anointed, Jesus. <laughs> We're loving it. But the crowds are getting hungry. They need something to eat. Remember what Jesus said to them? Okay, go get them something to eat. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, the people are hungry, we should feed them, Jesus goes, okay, go find something to eat and you feed them. The apostles here said, you guys select from among yourselves men who can do this. And so the multitudes have approved of these men that were selected. The second thing that this sort of laying of hands on, this praying, and this sort of public commissioning uh, does, it, it reveals the apostles' approval of these men. So the multitudes have approved of them by selecting them in the first place. Well, now the apostles have approved them by laying hands on them and praying for them. And the third thing it does is that it reveals God's approval of them, right? Think about the street cred that these seven guys have now. You know what I mean when I say street cred? Street credibility? I mean, we learned last week that people were bringing the lame and the sick from all of the villages around Jerusalem. They're bringing them into the temple, into Solomon's colonnade, and they're laying people on cots and mats just so that Peter's shadow might cast upon them and they might be healed. Okay, The people have seen these apostles working miracles at their own hands. God working through these guys for these supernatural things. Okay, And so when these apostles who have been doing all of this supernatural stuff have this great reputation by God, approve of these seven, think about the credibility that this gives these guys. Think about what that says about these seven. You guys are worthy. You guys are entrusted to handle this. And then the last thing we'll see here is in verse 7. 
And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I thought to myself, and I asked Michael about this, why do you think Luke makes this comment about Jerusalem? You know, it might be that Luke has in mind where he's going to take us as he's recording the history of the early church. Luke might have in mind that what is about to happen to the early church and to the gospel message at large is that it is pretty soon going to go out beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Up until now, it has been relegated, and this is exactly what Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, beginning first in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's what we see happening, and and Luke knows he's going to begin writing about this gospel message going out beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And it's going to happen very soon. And I love that he includes that priests were coming. Priests were beginning to believe in the name of Jesus. You know, priests were the biggest opponents to these guys. The biggest opponents. The biggest opposition. And now it says that as a result of the preaching and the teaching that was continuing to happen, because they made sure they devoted themselves to their first calling... That many came, including the biggest opponents. And so I'll say maybe three things in closing here. Growth typically results in growing pains, right? You know, this is obvious in the church, but I would say that it includes our own personal lives as well. And I'm sure you all can recall a season or a moment or an event where you experience growing pains in your own personal lives. And we won't discount the hand of God in that. Remember what Jesus said in the vineyard as he's making his way through in those dark hours from the upper room and he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's walking through the vineyard with the disciples and he says, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to share a truth with them. He says, I'm the vine. You guys are the branches. Remain in me. But he goes on with the illustration. He says that for the branches that produce fruit, the vine dresser comes along and he constructively prunes them. And the reason he prunes them is to get more fruit. So even when fruit is being produced, there is a pruning process with the express purpose of producing even more fruit. And it might be a little bit painful at times. You might be used by God right now and growing and producing fruit and the Lord is pruning you in a way that will produce even more fruit. I bet if you ask some of those branches, they go, yeah, it hurts. You've all been there. Sometimes it hurts. But God has a purpose in doing it. So growth typically results in growing pains. second thing I think that we should highlight from this passage is that we should be willing to walk in and exercise our calling for the glory of God, which which also includes abstaining from those areas where we're not called. Now let me be clear, every believer has been given the Great Commission. Every believer is called to evangelize, to witness, to share, to make disciples by teaching and baptizing in the name of Jesus. Okay? We're to always be sharing. We're to always be ready to give an account for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, as Peter says. 
But, we've also got unique callings and skill sets and abilities that God wants to use in other different ways. And I think that what's important for us to remember, especially in the body of Christ, is to walk in, embrace, and celebrate the ways in which God has gifted us and made us. And that includes sometimes saying no to something we're not called to. And then the third thing I think we'll say here is that God's provision for growth precedes the growing pains. God's provision for growth actually precedes the growing pains. You see, God had already established these seven men as being worthy of these new responsibilities. When the charge to the multitudes came from the apostles to go choose seven men with these qualifications, well, they had already been behaving in ways that were God-honoring. They had already been behaving in ways that others were able to witness their character that others were able to witness that they were full of the Holy Spirit and that the character of God permeated everything they did. And so God had already prepared for that. God had already been working in their lives that way, knowing full well that these men would need to be chosen. And so I would say the same happens for us. Sometimes we don't always recognize it and realize it. I don't know how our lives... From the example I gave when I opened up, I don't know how our lives and the resources that we had at that time ever became enough, but God knew. We haven't really missed a beat. God has been so gracious and so good to allow us to to continue on with a bigger family than what we previously had. So while we sat and had tears on our face about this new information, about this growing family, God had already accounted for it. His provision preceded the growing pains. And so I'll just kind of close with that this morning, that growth results or will incur growing pains. And oftentimes it's like a pruning process. And that we should also celebrate the skill sets that God has gifted us And understand that every ministry for the glory of God is of equal value. And sometimes it's as important to say, yes, I'll sign up for this because I'm qualified, as much as it is to say, I'm not called to this, I'm called to this over here. And then, of course, to recognize that God has got it. God is putting in place in Acts chapter 6 a structure to handle what he knows is coming down the road for this body of believers. God knows it in your life as well. And you can kind of buck at it and and resist it or you can celebrate what he's doing even when you don't understand it knowing he's got your back for what is to come.